Welcome to 17 Scintillating Minutes of Science. Um, I'm Matt Baudet. I'm the CEO of InVivo Biosystems. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jeremy Levin. Now, Dr. Levin has held executive leadership roles at a number of large pharma companies, including uh, Novartis, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Teva Pharmaceuticals. Uh, additionally, he's also the chairman of Bio, which is the largest international biotechnology trade organization. And perhaps most importantly, he is the chairman and CEO of his own company, Ovid Therapeutics, which develops therapies for rare neurological disorders. Welcome, Jeremy. Um, now, before I jump in, uh, or before you jump in, I'll remind you that we are going to be starting the 17-minute timer now. So uh, talk fast. Are you ready? Well, great to be with you. All right. Um, so in June, you pulled together 47 biotech luminaries uh, and published their thoughts and stories in a book under the title, uh, Biotechnology in the Time of COVID. Uh, since then, what has been the biggest surprise for you insofar as, as what the biotech and pharma response has been? I think it's a scale. In the context of there were zero programs in January of this year, there are over 700 right now, 150 uh, in vaccines, over 150 new medicines. And, you know, we're on the cusp of getting data from those vaccine trials. And um, what has been your, your biggest uh, sort of negative surprise uh, since then? Matt, it's really simple. The introduction of politics has been extremely damaging to this. At the very essence of finding new medicines and curing patients is all about science and medicine. It's not about whether it's politically right to say this or that. And the essence of this period of time has been the compression, the dedication, the focus of the scientists. But at the end of the day, the thing that's been the most negative has been the introduction of politics into it. And so, you know, kind of building off that uh, of some of the, the people coming together and actually in the book, a lot of the discussions around the, the big changes that are envisioned, permanent changes that are envisioned to come to biotech and pharma. Uh, which of those do you believe are going to be the largest shift post pandemic? Oh, this has been a very, from a purely industrial basis, this has been an extraordinary change. And there are a number of different levels that have been impacted. At one level, at the discovery of new medicines, we're having, we're seeing a shift of investment. In the beginning of this year, over 50% of all investment went into oncology drugs. Right now, that investment is very much diminished relative to the overall investment. So we're going to see new discoveries in immunology, new discoveries in virology. And I'm very keen to see new discoveries in how vaccines are made. Next level up, we're seeing a whole new set of technologies applied to how you measure patients during a clinical trial. You don't have to come to a hospital. You can actually be measured at home. So we have, we're seeing a mini revolution that's taking place in clinical trials. And then right at the other end of that is manufacturing. Absolutely. Manufacturing was the poor stepchild of the industry. It was always considered, send it somewhere else. Well, the real innovation of manufacturing is that it's not about 
cheap labor, which is why things were sent abroad, but rather about investing in innovation, investing in automation, kind of like the car industry was at one stage. So this, there's a, a whole slew of changes from, in, from technology. And then I think what's really also an equally exciting is the way that our partner, the partner with the industry, which is the FDA and CDC, will probably look very carefully at their processes and see if they've learned from this experience. And if they have, and they're terrific people, particularly the FDA, will have a whole new way of thinking about uh, drug approvals. Hmm. Well, and so a lot of those are, are really large changes. Do you think that there's going to be um, sort of smaller ripple effects that will radiate outward and affect even uh, a company like yours researching uh, therapeutics for rare diseases? Matt, it already has. Our trials, we're going to deliver in a few, well, but before the end of the year, we will deliver the first ever result for a disease called Angelman's. Very rare, 23,000 patients, no previous medicine at all. And when we started the year, we needed to enroll patients. We started in a pretty conventional pace. We then saw what was happening with COVID and we immediately switched to a whole new way of engaging with the patients, enrolling the patients, watching them, monitoring them and assessing the effect of the drug. This was planned out. And although we were delayed by about three months, we'll now definitely deliver everything because of the new ways of doing things. From the rare disease community as a whole, there has been some slowdown in some areas, particularly where patients have had to go to hospitals. And that's a tragedy because they do need to have those new medicines and there's a whole slew of them which are coming along. But in general, in general, COVID has allowed us to start thinking about how to run a clinical trial differently, more efficiently and at a distance without necessarily bringing a patient to hospital who might then get exposed to an infectious agent. And um, I know from talking to you earlier that there's additional benefits to, to doing a clinical trial where the patient stays in their own home. Uh, yeah, yes, indeed, man. I mean, this is terribly important. Imagine when you go to a hospital and you don't normally go to a hospital, well, your behavior changes, your reactions to your environment changes. And in many of these rare diseases where these individuals are really attuned to a very stable environment, you can dislocate their thinking, their emotions dramatically. This also applies, by the way, to much broader disorders. I think we're gonna have a really interesting dialogue around uh, depression, schizophrenia, even Alzheimer's, and how you measure those patients. So the ripple effect that you call, as you call it, which is a good word, in fact, I think will net-net, particularly on diseases of the brain, will have an effect which I think is positive. And do you think that there'll be any changes in the, the, the demographic of who's involved in clinical trials? Oh, very important, because as you well know, our clinical trials generally do not necessarily capture a, to date, have not captured the array of people that it should capture. In fact, across all age groups, all social strata, all types of individual. I think that by not having people come from, from some of the depressed areas, some of the economically underprivileged areas, we may, we may be able to see a shift in that. And I would hope that all the companies are focused very much on doing that. 
because the technologies we're developing and the understanding of the demographies has increased and it's critical if we're going to find medicines for all people and not just for some subset. And do you think that uh, some of that, that, that same need for diversification in the clinical trial, do you think that that's also needed for the development of the vaccines and therapeutics for very large disorders, perhaps even the largest COVID? Well, let's take our hats off to some of the large pharmaceutical companies. They have, a couple of them have already stated publicly that recognizing that COVID is a, uh, an infection which strikes down very particular subgroups, they have broadened their trials to try and include those subgroups. Now that's a critical step. Now there's very, very important when one does that to reassure the individuals involved that this is not some experiment being done on them, but rather that they can participate in developing cures that are important for their groups of people. Otherwise, quite frankly, it's very difficult to assess whether a, a vaccine particularly will have an effect on any subgroup. Could be different on a young group, could be different on an elder group, could be different on a weight, different weight, weight and size individuals and social strata. This is incredibly important, Matt. And so I think, yes, this will have an effect and it should have an effect and it will be a healthy effect. Well, good. Uh, now, early on, you brought up that uh, one of the negative trends that you've noticed is the politicization of, of COVID um, and the biotech pharma response. And then you just mentioned the role, the important role that pharma and biotech can play in reassuring um, the public on the validity of vaccine trials. Uh, what do you think is the ongoing responsibility um, in the coming year as we start to roll out actual vaccines and therapies for COVID? I think there is an absolute requirement of all concerned not just the companies, but government as well, to have a unified voice that indeed science and medicine matter and that there will be no corners cut on not just whether the, it works, the efficacy of the vaccine, but also on the safety of the vaccine. Now it's much, it's clear to everybody concerned that given the scale and the brevity of some of these trials that you can definitely get a good sense of the effectiveness of these medicines, of these vaccines. Much more troubling to get a clear and comprehensive view of the safety. So I think a couple of principles need and will be hopefully applied. One of these is transparency of how this was done. Number two is in fact a clear uh, peer review of what was done then an adequate monitoring of any rollout of a medicine, but particularly at its core, the most important thing is letting the FDA proceed with clear safety and clear uh, efficacy guidelines that it's always done actually. And they are a touchstone. They are really the gold standard in the world. And so we need to give them the freedom to operate exactly as they need to. And that's an interesting point. I've heard from other pharma executives that the role or the, the interface between the FDA and pharma can sometimes be filled with friction. And 
and here you're really saying that the that making sure that the FDA is given the space to do it correctly is important. Matt, in the years gone by, there was this sense that here was an agency that was trying to control the industry. That has dispelled, particularly under Scott Gottlieb. There's been a real sea change over the last 10 years. It has become a partner, one that we know it. You, have, you certainly have to negotiate an outcome, but they're not there as an obstructionist. The FDA has always tried to be innovative, particularly, for example, in the rare disorders. They've looked to get people to get new medicines approved. They've tried their very best. And it's sometimes very large when an agency, which is several tens of thousands large with huge budgets and real processes, they have to learn as much as we do. They have to understand as much as we do. Very difficult task, but by and large, my respect and my regard for them has gone up tremendously. Uh, not just now, but over the last 10, 15 years, that friction is a healthy tension now. It's not a combative friction. Hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a great message. And, and actually, um, somewhat speaking of message, the, you know, many of the people that uh, are watching 17 Minutes of Science, and, and myself included, are somewhat the, uh, the foot soldiers for, for science and for this process. Is somewhat is there, um, you know, things that you are encouraging scientists to uh, make sure they tell their friends or that you want to tell our audience um, to make sure that they go out and, and repeat? Well, first of all, I want to compliment you, Matt. Your role, the role of the press at this particular moment in history is one of the, perhaps one of the most important we've ever seen. The press and the media have an enormous role and against the onslaught of those who try and distort the facts or those who misrepresent what has been said, it is the essence of great journalism and great reporting to describe what's going on and to offer the platforms to those who are factually giving data the opportunity. And, and so the message that I hope will go out from your show, I hope that will go out from others, is very simple. Demand from those who are in the legislature and those to whom you hold accountability, demand that science and medicine play the only role in delivering these medicines. Hmm. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you. Uh, the one other thing, um, you know, definitely, I'm very interested in Ovid Therapeutics. Oh, actually, here we've got a question from our audience. Um, so we've accepted the reality that there's not an end date to this pandemic, but what are your thoughts on how things will, will sort of play out as we approach the one year mark for SARS-CoV-2? There's no end game, you are correct. This will continue for years to come. But number one, we need to take stock of the fact that America has lost more people to this than pretty much any other nation in the world. And we have 7 million infections. So the end game must be to insist that those who are responsible act responsibly to ensure that we don't spread this, to ensure that those are who are using very practical, simple methodologies in schools, in colleges, as we go back to work, ensure that we wear the masks, ensure that we take steps to be socially distanced in a, in a sensible fashion and don't deride, deride this 200,000 deaths are not to be derided. 
So I think number one is that. The second thing is we will get a vaccine. No question about that in my mind. It will roll out, it will come, and eventually it will probably have to change over time as this virus tries to adapt, much like flu does, but there will be a vaccine and we will understand importantly, very importantly, we will understand the characteristics of how this bug is attacking us. We don't yet understand it, but we will do. We will definitely understand it. And when we do, it'll offer different avenues to treat people. You'll watch death rates go down, as we've already seen. Ventilators, not such a good thing. Steroids, a great thing. There'll be a whole set of patterns of medical treatment that will come out. So I do believe common sense, using practical barrier systems now, separation, waiting for the vaccines, being prepared to in fact use them. And then most importantly is ensuring that the medical knowledge is centralized and distributed so that we know how to deal with this disorder. We don't yet. Hmm. Ah, yeah, thank you. Um, it is rather daunting. Uh, one other question is um, the flu influenza uh, annually kills close to 60,000 people every year. Do you think that there will be an intolerance for that level of death uh, from influenza after going through the COVID pandemic? Well, I think that we've managed flu pretty well. We understand it socially, medically, and from vaccine perspective. I think it's be very difficult to get it lower than that. That said, we know how to control it. We have the vaccines. We need people to take these vaccines and we could knock it back substantially. So if we've learned one thing from flu, take the vaccines, you can knock it back. Same with COVID. All right, thank you. And that was the timer. So that was 17 minutes of science with Dr. Jeremy Levin. Thank you very much again. And uh, everybody stay safe. Stay safe. It's a great pleasure to see you and be with you.